0: We are going through hermeneutics now. Hermeneutics means what? What can y'all? Who knows? What's hermeneutics mean? Learn about Bee Wee Ehrman. Ehrman. Oh my gosh! Yeah, that's it. That's it. What? What's hermeneutics, Stephen? The art of studying the Bible, reading the Bible. Uh, The art of reading the Bible. Sure, we could take that. Hermeneutics is. Give me some more. What's some more we got? Translating. um, We're getting closer. Translating. What else? the study of God's word, uh, maybe we could call that Bibleology, or maybe theology, ha-theos, logosology Oh man, now we're making up words. Um, hermeneutics is the art, the art of the proper interpretation of scriptures. And if y'all remember uh, last time when we were talking through this, we said, think of hermeneutics like a pair of glasses, right? Everybody has a lens through which they read the scriptures. Everybody has a lens through which they're reading the Bible. Um, you have, uh, you know, I don't know, your past experiences, your forward anticipated experience, what you want out of life, your career, where you were brought up, blah, 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 blah. That all has an influence on how you read and interpret the scriptures. So, hermeneutics is us trying to in- interpret the scriptures the right way. Because uh, we can all agree that there is a right way to interpret the Bible, right? There's a correct way to do it. That also means that there are wrong ways. <laughs> if there is a right, then there are wrongs, and so we got to go as God's people and labor to make sure that we're discovering the uh, the correct way. So I want to I want to go through a couple of quick review questions with you guys from last time before we kind of jump in uh, to today's pieces. Um, we'll just I'll, I'll jog through a few definitions with you guys. I know last time was a bit a bit like a fire hose um, of information. And so we've got it online for you too that you can go and pull up. And what my hope is, is uh, and today I'm going to give you another fire hose, you're welcome. Uh, But what my hope is, is to go back over time and lay into more laboriously each one of these topics that I'm kind of giving you an overview with, okay? We might not do that all in this particular series, um, but my goal is to help us, my big goal really here is to help us understand that we all have an interpretation of the Bible. We all come to the Bible with a, a lens and we need to make sure that we're at least trying and aware that we need to come with the right one, not the wrong one. Okay. So we're going to continue through there. Let's go through a couple of review. Um, who remembers what authorial intent is? We talked about this last time. What is authorial intent? Carrie. The, it's what the author meant the writings to mean. The, it was the, What is the intent of the author when he wrote this information down? What was the purpose of writing it down? So um, let's just go through a couple of examples yet. What's, what's the intent of the author of Leviticus? What is his intent? He's intending to tell everybody the laws of God, right? And based on what? That we should do what with those laws, we should obey <laughs> There you go. We got it. That's very good. We should follow those laws. What is the um, intent of the authors of the gospel? In some instances, they tell you exactly what their intents were. Y'all remember what were the? What's the intent of the gospel authors? Ashley to tell the story of Jesus. Um, in fact, Luke uh, says it very explicitly. He's like that. I, he's like, I've compiled these accounts that you may have a good record of the works of Jesus Christ. Um, Luke wrote probably Acts as well, by the way. Jesus, well, he wrote something on the ground whenever he was rebuking those Pharisees, but we don't know what it was. That's the interesting part. When he did write something, it didn't tell us what it was. It just, he just kind of wrote it. So it's an interesting moment. All right. Um, let's talk about what are the two primary pieces of a proper hermeneutic? Can you all remember? What are the two primary pieces of a proper hermeneutic? Oh, yeah, Jason Bullock got one, five points. If I had candy, I would throw it to you. I used to do that when I was a youth pastor. I bought a bunch of snickers bars, and then whenever somebody got a question right, I was like, "Snickers bar. you, know, you got to do something to keep these kids engaged. <laughs> Maybe that would work with adults. Buddy, What do you think? We could try? Yeah, that would work with adults. Why not? Let's swing for it next time. Adult do what? A dog clicker. Good job. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> All right, so we got the grammar. That's right. What's the second piece? The historicals, because it's a, the proper hermeneutic that we want to be using is called a grammatical historical hermeneutic. The, the grammar, meaning what do the words on the page say, and we talked a lot last time about why your grammar skills matter, right? Because you need to understand um, future progressive, past participles, um, adverbs, adjectives, uh, structure of a general sentence. Um, especially whenever you get into Paul's writings, my goodness, some of his sentences, they just, whoo, they're, like more, they're more like paragraphs. And you read a lot of ancient literature, you find a lot of sentences structured that way. So you really got to know, okay, this clause is talking about this word, and then this is an adverbial clause, and that means it's talking about this word. And then you, you got to be able to do a lot of that work on your own. The translators do a, get a bit of it for you, but grammar matters. And so we need to think of that as well. When we say a grammatical historical hermeneutic, what is the historical part? What does that mean? The context. Very good. The historic. We need to know what the historical context was. Now, here's the million dollar question. Where is the primary place that we should gather historical context from? The Bible. Exactly. Okay. So don't run to your secular universities and your secular history books to gather the history of the day. Don't give that primary instruction. Don't give that primacy, in other words, okay? We want to make sure that the first thing that we're using to interpret the Bible is the is the Bible. The Bible interprets the Bible. The New Testament interprets the Old Testament. The Old Testament informs the New Testament. The writings build up. And if you're participating in our Bible reading plan that we're doing as a church, are you seeing? They're intentionally trying to show you how this stuff layers on top of each other, how the whole Bible is compiled and is one book and it informs. Like you'll read something that David's going through and then you'll read some Psalms that he wrote whenever he was going through it. And you'll read Old Testament and then you'll read Hebrew application of that Old Testament passage. It's really, really cool. You'll read first Kings and then you'll jump into Chronicles and you'll see the same things happening again. Bible informs Bible. And, and even as you're going through, I think right now we're in Kings. Yeah. Right now we're in Kings. You see very often it says, and you could read more about this King in the Chronicles of such and such, right? Well, they're talking in those moments about very often first and second Chronicles. That's what they're, they're referencing the the Passages in those pieces. And if you've got a good Bible with good cross references, you can clue, pop over there and read things like that. And that's helpful. Yes, sir? Yeah. A good cross reference Bible is going to help you see where those Old Testament prophecies are, refi- are fulfilled in the New Testament. Now, word of caution. Um, Don't do that with the Schofield, okay? If you got a Schofield Bible, y'all know what I'm talking about when I say Schofield? Y'all don't even know. Sweet. Okay, great. So Schofield was one of the hardcore dispensationalist uh, study guys, and there's the Schofield Bible, which I think might be like a King James or a New Living version or something, in which he has all his dispensationalist footnotes put into it and it doesn't carry any of the other ones. So you need to uh, uh, watch out for that guy. It's going to throw a bunch of things. He starts like, dispensationalists are the guys who get out giant charts whenever they start analyzing the temple, and they say things like, this temp peg represents this era of this age. It's weird stuff. So anyway, watch out for that. So grammatical historical hermeneutics, we're talking about the grammar of the text, and we're talking about the historical context of the day. That's a grammatical historical hermeneutic. And the first place that we get the historical context from excuse me is from the bible. Now is that to say that a well-informed historian should not be trusted? No. I mean, but make sure they're trustworthy, <laughs> right? Make sure they're Christians um, if you can. Make sure they come to the uh to the table with understanding that the bible is authoritative and not um alterable. And uh, as soon as somebody says some things where like, well, right here Paul got it wrong. You need to you need to be very, very nervous and roll the other way. <clears throat> so, why do we make sure that we trust the Bible over history and tradition? Why is that important? Why do we trust the Bible over history and tradition? Say again? Truth? What'd you say, Candace? Just to get it right. Get it right. <laughs> well, it's because we believe in the inerrancy and the infallibility of scriptures. Amen? Um, Because so did Paul. So did the writers, you know, the writer. In fact, the um, the uh, Jewish people would take such meticulous work into translating the scriptures that if they like made one mistake, they would throw the whole uh, transcription away. They, they would go they would have it checked over and over again. Each line was checked, each word was checked, each page was checked, and if there was ever a mistake, they would just give away their whole transcription. It was very, very, very meticulously done. And the, the New Testament wasn't quite copied as so as well as the Old Testament was, as meticulously as the Old Testament was. Does anybody know why? Because they were all running for their lives. Right? Like I mean, that's during the during the year of about AD seventy to about 8300. The church is literally living in secret, running for their lives all the time. And so the scriptures were copied like crazy. They were copied like crazy and distributed like crazy and given out and all over the place. And so as a result, we have more copies of the New Testament than, or well, probably in the Old Testament too, more copies of these books than we do of, of anything else in literature history. Like, and that means that we can take all those copies, study them and say, hey, Because of these um, similarities between all these manuscripts, we can say that the original manuscripts most likely said this exact phrasing. It's called textual criticism. It's a very helpful thing for us to go in with. So we want to make sure that we're believing the Bible first, that we're not letting history sit over the Bible because we believe in the inerrancy and the infallibility of Scripture. And we'll talk about those doctrines more another day and what they mean. Um, And then we'll go on from there and do some... Some more fun work. Uh, We don't trust tradition over the Bible because we're not Roman Catholic, um, because we say we believe in all of the scriptures. Um, And around 1500, I think it was 1560, after the um, Reformation started taking place, Martin Luther, um, John Knox, John Calvin, all those guys started spinning up and the Protestant Reformation took hold after everybody got tired of being told they had to buy their way into heaven. Shocker. Um, the Reformation took hold, and the Roman Catholics added extra books to the Bible that actually enforced their um, Roman Catholic tradition, um, and that is called the the Apocrypha. the Apocrypha. Very good, very good. That's called the Apocrypha, uh, and that's why Roman Catholicism. You see how that plays out, though. If you believe history tradition weighs in over the Scriptures, you can do stuff like that. You can do stuff like that pretty easily, and we don't believe that. We believe the Scriptures are sufficient. We believe that the canon is closed. And so we trust the Lord because the Bible says to. All right. Today, anybody got any questions about that? I'm done with my review now. Questions about that? Thoughts? All the historians who believe in the Bible. Are usually preachers. The historians who believe the Bible are usually preachers. <laughs> well, hopefully we can trust preachers. I saw this really interesting chart. This is not related to uh, what I was saying today, but the public, I saw this really cool chart that talks about the public trust the public general trust for people based on their professions. At the very top was like physicians, doctors, nurses, and like somewhere in the middle towards like, you know, the bottom was preachers. (laughs) And I was like, man, I definitely trust myself more than the doctor. (laughs) We got to figure this part out. Anyway, uh, today I want to jump in. And start talking about how we interpret the Old Testament. How do we read the Old Testament? How do we how do we dig in and make sure that we're we're reading it correctly? Now, I warned you beforehand. This is a bit of a fire hose overview, and my hope is later that we're going to be able to go back and really hammer into each one of these subtopics. But the Old Testament is made up of lots of different. Um, Oh, what's the right word? Types of literature. There you go. The Old Testament is made up of lots of different types of literature. And so we kind of got to be familiar with each one of them as we go through. So let me ask you a couple of foundational questions before we start. Does the Old Testament matter? Yes. Why does it matter? Because it holds prophecy. Because, let me, did Jesus believe the Old Testament? Absolutely he did. Did the prophets and the apostles believe the Old Testament? what books were the new testament church referencing whenever they were talking about the scriptures they were talking about the they were talking about the old testament and the new testament too in fact if you go look at paul's writings i believe it's in first or second timothy he even tells them take my letters and the other scriptures And go and bring them to the other churches. He's saying, hey guys, we're writing new scripture. We're writing new passages for us to understand. Now, the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, this is very, very, very important stuff. Okay, y'all ready? A long time, we used to think that between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was this sharp difference between the two. Okay? Like this huge, um, if you got a paper Bible and you flip through, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was this blank page. It was weird that that was even there in the first place. What's that? Four hundred years. There was there was a season of four hundred years. That's right. But this doesn't mean that there's a sharp total distinction between the two okay so what we're talking about here is more like a like a plant like a flower so the way that things blossom into existence the way that they grow into existence the way that they unfold over time reveals new attributes but if we go back and we're going to talk about this today in the sermon and church as well if we go back and look we can understand that really it's all been based on one promise restated and unfolded throughout the history of the church throughout the last six thousand years that's what's really going on. There's not a sharp distinction between both covenants. They're one promise that's continuing to unfold. That's why in the New Testament time, they sat down and said, Hey, we got more scriptures to write. God's mouth has been opened, He's no longer quiet, and we're going to put these things down and make sure that we're holding fast to them. Amen? So we should read the Old Testament, and it should inform us in what we do, and we don't leave it alone. I want to go through real quickly a couple of different, as squiggly as I can, I suppose, a couple of different of the literature types that we're going to find in the Old Testament. The first one is called historical narrative. What's a historical narrative? This is easy stuff. The title gives it away. It's a what? It's a story. It's a historical narrative, meaning somebody is writing down, they're telling you what the history. Historical narrative teaches us the history of God's people. Now, historical narrative, and this is where a lot of people get hung up, it's descriptive, not necessarily prescriptive. Do you all understand the difference between those two words? Descriptive means it's describing what's what's happening, Okay. Prescriptive means it's commanding you to do something. Now, what is an Old Testament section or an Old Testament book that's clearly giving us commandments by which we should live? Leviticus. Okay, we got Leviticus in there. We, got, uh, we could toss in which other one? Deuteronomy, right? Um, there are sections of Genesis. Um, there are sections of other books, Exodus, that give direct commands that we're seeing from God. What you got? Proverbs is very instructive, but it's not, uh, we'll talk about that one in a second, but yes, yes, agreed. Um, But we see within the Old Testament, we got lots of different kinds, but there's a lot of it that's just history. What's some example of history that we see in the Old Testament? Samuel, first and second Samuel, that's right, like we're going through right now. What's some other examples of history? Creation itself, that's examples of history, so that's Genesis like one through three. What else is historical? Abraham, Isaac, lots of stuff. Let's do one more and then we'll be done. What's more historical? Exodus, Exodus, the story of the exodus of Israel from Egypt. Yeah, absolutely. Y'all got it. Okay, good. But it's descriptive, not prescriptive. All right. And there's lots of reasons for this. Um, For example, if you read the Old Testament, you're going to see polygamy popping up all over the place, right? What's polygamy? Multiple wives. One dude, multiple wives. How come there wasn't a wife with multiple husbands running around? Like, what's the what's the deal with that? We don't see that popping up. That is a descriptive situation, not prescriptive. How do we know that? How do we know? Where does the Bible tell us that polygamy is a sin? It does. It's So here we go. Whenever God created man, did he create Adam and Eve's? No, he made Adam and Eve. He also did not make Adam and Steve. (laughs) Sorry, okay, I couldn't help it. It was right there. I had to say it. Please forgive me. We're not going to edit that out, though. All right. Uh, Where else is it confirmed that God has designed marriage between one man and one woman? Well, how about in every historical description... That we see in the Old Testament of polygamy, everybody's lives get messed the heck up. We see that every time. We saw that with, we saw that with Solomon. We saw that with David. We saw all that kind of. David and Bathsheba is a huge story that goes in with that. Um, in the New Testament, what's the qualifications for elder pastor? Do y'all remember? Husband of one wife. You see what I'm saying? We see it all over the Bible. We see it everywhere. So historical narrative is descriptive, not prescriptive. We need to remember that God's covenant has been blossoming for the last 6,000 years. It hasn't changed. Look at me in the eyeball, okay? The covenant of God has not changed. It is unfolding, right? What's another easy example that we can point to about this topic in the scriptures? Can you all think of one? What requirements, Dana? Sacrificial requirements. requirements. So in the Old Testament, what they have to do? Sacrifice tons of animals in order to cover their sin. Now, if you go back forward and you read the rest of the Old Testament, you actually understand that the tabernacle on earth represented a tabernacle in heaven. And where it was happening in the tabernacle in heaven, the actual sacrifices that counted. The tabernacle on earth didn't house the sacrifices that really counted, but they were a sign of the true sacrifice, which was coming in the future in the form of Jesus. Jesus. They were all talking forward about the, the coming sacrifice of Christ. Yes, that's very good. What's another one? What's another one that we can see that has unfolded throughout the history of the world? Can we see another one? Throughout the history of the church, throughout the history of the world? Well, the Ten Commandments the legal description of our moral- yeah, we see the Ten Commandments perpetually unfolding. In fact, Jesus did that whenever he gave the Sermon on the Mount, right? You you have heard it said that you shall not look at another woman with lust. In, oh, no, sorry. You shall not commit adultery with another woman. But I say to you, what did he say? If you do so much as look at a woman with lust in your eyes, you've committed adultery. What's he doing? He's unfolding the commandments. He's bringing them to their full fruition, right? And then he's going to send the Holy Spirit later because his... Do his, you remember his disciples' response? Then who can be saved, Right? And what did Jesus say? Mm, With man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Because what was going to happen? The Holy Spirit was going to be poured out on God's people, and they were going to be caused in the fulfillment of Ezekiel to walk in his statutes and obey him and delight in his law. See, how cool is this, man? You put the whole Bible together, and everything just makes sense. Okay, cool. Let's do one more, just for fun. This is an easy one. Uh, What about slavery? You guys remember slavery? In the Old Testament, we see lots of examples of slavery, don't we? we see bond servants, we see slaves. Um, Now this is not the same thing as uh, what we saw in the West, which was chattel slavery between, I'd say like between really the foundation of the Roman empire and about 1800, you know, all of that was chattel slavery, which what's the difference between bond servants, slavery in the old Testament and chattel slavery. Do you guys know off the top of your head? Tra- chattel slavery thank you buddy is treating people as property that's right and that's not at all what was happening in the old testament in fact you, if you re- remember reading the old testament you could receive slaves bond servants because they would choose to work for somebody in order to do what to pay off a debt and then at the end of their work if they looked at their master and they said i could love him and i can't go anywhere else i i want to stay with them what would they do y'all remember They would pierce their ear. They would literally nail their ear to the wall of the master's house, which is really just a piercing to go through it, but as a representation to the doorpost of the master's house, as a representation of this man is committed to this family because he wanted to be. And as a result, it was almost like he was being adopted in. But you see in the Old Testament provision for slaves, care for the poor. You see all these things going out. No doubt there was evil people who abused this and all kinds of stuff. But even if you move forward to the New Testament, what starts happening? Y'all read the book of Philemon? Philemon is about a slave who has been saved and ran away. And Paul's instruction to the owner, I think the owner was Philemon. The master of the slave was Philemon. And I can't remember what the slave's name was off the top of my head. But his instruction, what was that? Onesimus. Onesimus. His instruction to Philemon about Onesimus. Thank you, Landon. I'm just going to like, just make sure that you're you're here. You're like my co-teacher kind of. All right, so in those moments, what does he say to him? He says, receive Onesimus back and treat him what? As a brother. A A slave? And then what happened with William Wilberforce around the year? Oh, man, I can't remember. 16, 17, 1800. What did William Wilberforce do in the West? Y'all remember? He fought to uh, end the slavery. He fought to end chattel slavery. No more of this. We're not doing this nonsense anymore. We're moving on from this. In fact, it was only in America that 600,000 people were killed in order to end slavery. Spoiler alert, the Civil War was not about slavery. I don't have time to get into that right now, but it was not about slavery. I got some great, there's super cool, massive history books about what was going on in there. It was actually about nationalism and the expansion of federal powers, nationalistic powers. Same thing we're dealing with today. Okay, here we go. Any questions about any of that before we move on? Cool. If you tweet that, by the way, you will get shot. (laughs) Not by me, by everyone else. (laughs) By everyone else. All right. Um, All right, so that's the general idea behind historical narrative it's descriptive, not prescriptive. And remember, we're watching the promises of God unfold. Um, Another classification inside of the Old Testament would be poetry. Um, What are some examples of poetry that we see in the Bible? Easy Psalms, right? Um, We see over and over in the Old Testament, suddenly people just burst into song. You ever been reading through the Old Testament or any part of the Bible, really, and all of a sudden all the passages get indented off the side of the page? That's because that's poetry. Um, it's really amazing because people who follow Jesus, people who worship the Lord, all of a sudden, every now and then, they just burst into song. Why don't we do that? <laughs> <laughs> it's called flow. They just, like, start freestyling. It, flash mob. <laughs> Why don't I start that trend? Now oh, I'm nervous. <laughs> next time. Next, I'm going to have it going for you all next time. There's one of the guys who go to Northside who's a... uh, Remember when it was cool for people to be rappers? Do y'all remember that? Um, Yeah, you remember that. So there's like a young man from Northside who like still writes raps. uh, It was funny because I was like, tell me what. (laughs) He was all embarrassed and on the spot. So poetry, we see a lot of it in the Psalms and other places of the Old Testament. It teaches us the truths of the Bible and the disposition of the person wrestling with those truths. And that's an enormous asset for Christians. It tells us truths of the scripture and it tells us the disposition of the person who's wrestling with those truths right now. Think about, you ever read um, the Psalms? When I'm going through it, the Psalms are like medicine for my soul, man, because David did too. And he's crying out to God, oh Lord, How long will this go on? And I just think like, all right, David, a man after God's own heart, he said stuff like that. Okay, I I can cry out the same way. I'm not alone here. Christians endure difficult things. They endure trials. It happens. We're going to see that today um, in Psalm 69, which is actually in reference to 1 Samuel 30. the trials that David is enduring as he walks through it. So poetry teaches us the truths of the scripture and the disposition of the writer who is wrestling with those truths. They're very very good for your soul in times of trouble. So times of trial. If you're going through trials in your life, 100%. So when Rachel and I were very sick, well, she wasn't very sick. I was very sick with the with the Wuhan COVID stuff 2 years ago. And like we literally had like question marks like I called my life insurance guy, and I was like, hey, policy's active, right? Like, (laughs) I was verifying just to make sure, making sure all those things were in place. Um, And I was, like, anxious, anxiety-filled, having issues. And my wife, who's very good at ministering to my soul on a regular basis, she just went and got, um, what was it? It was the Shane and Shane album, Psalms, Psalms 1, Psalm 2, Psalm 3, and all those different things. And she just pushed play on it and set the phone next to my ear. And it helped, you know? And I'm not saying like, ham shamalaka, I was vibing and it helped. Like, I don't mean like that. But the truths of those scriptures ministered to my soul. Uh, When I am in the depths, O Lord, I will cry out to you. You Like, those are good, good things to have. So if you're going through trials, psalms are great. All right, let's talk about the next one. Buddy was talking about this one earlier. Wisdom literature. Wisdom literature. (coughs) What's some examples of wisdom literature? Proverbs. Um, are there other spots that are wisdom? Yeah, there's lots of other spots. Go ahead. Ecclesiastes. <laughs> that one's a little depressing sometimes. But yeah, no, Ecclesiastes. You got to, uh, didn't you just teach through Ecclesiastes, Landon? Yeah, you just went through that. Ecclesiastes is fun. Um, there is nothing new under the sun! You know, like, you can tell the guy's like raging out a little bit at the beginning of it. But his point is God is constant, the world is broken, God is good. Let's move forward from here. Like he was, he was dealing with all this stuff, and it was Solomon. And you can choose to believe, you know, what the disposition of Solomon was in that book on yourself. Um, but <clears throat> wisdom literature is a lot of fun. I summarize it this way: one-liners that give us good bite-sized instruction, but they can sometimes be confusing. Y'all ever read through the Proverbs and been like, what is happening with this right here? And we're going to talk some about some of those tough ones later on today. And the last one that I want to visit with just really quickly is apocalyptic literature. What's an example of apocalyptic literature inside of the Old Testament? Daniel. Daniel, there it is. Yeah, Daniel. You ever got to Daniel and you're like, and there were two wheels intersecting each other and there was an angel ascending above the wheels with a thousand eyes and wings. And you're like, what on earth is going on? It's because apocalyptic literature doesn't exist in our world anymore. We don't, we don't write like that. Do you know what I'm saying? It's very, very cool stuff, <clears throat> but you really need good resources and good teaching to be able to go through. I don't want to spend a lot of time on apocalyptic literature today, other than to say it's wonderful when it lands, but in the Bible, apocalyptic literature is probably one of the hardest things to get underneath your belt. Um, Revelation in and of itself is is difficult as well, but when you got it, bro, it's fun. But it has a lot. You have to do a lot of work in order, order to make sure that you're reading it in the right context. Okay. Otherwise, you think it's an ancient aliens. <laughs> <That's it? laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, that's amazing. It's about the aliens, but you can see this is why we also don't remember. Take the. <laughs> the historical view and place it over the bible we let the bible interpret itself oh man that's amazing all right i want to spend a lot of time actually i got one more section for you you'll find a lot in the old testament about laws okay we're going to talk through some laws here today do god's laws still apply yes do all of god's laws still apply directly no no Because there are some cleanliness laws, there are some other, there's different types of laws. There's case law, there's moral law, there's purification laws, but all of them in and of themselves still apply. We know that they still apply. Some have been fulfilled by Jesus, though. How do we know that they still apply? Somebody go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 18. Quick, quick. Matthew chapter 5, verse 18. Who's got it? Read it loud. Is no one turning there? Because this is going to be embarrassing if no one is. It is really, I say to you, unless heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Boom. Jesus himself in the new covenant, in the new testament says not one bit of this is going away. It will all hold fast. Which means that we have to learn the right lenses in order to read those different things. And I'm going to give you a couple of them today. First, I want to give you this. We should interpret God's words covenantally. Everybody say that with me. Covenantally. So if it's all one promise from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament, if all one covenant... That means that we should interpret the Bible as such. Now some passages might not be speaking to you directly, but there are principles and morals that we as God's people can draw out of those scriptures. Do you get what I'm saying? Now that doesn't mean that they're commanding you, they're prescriptive for you exactly verbatim the way that they're written on the page. I'm talking about God's laws here, but we can take principles out of them that the Lord is still utilizing and teaching us today. Is everybody following with me here? So we don't just take the whole law and say, I'm done with this. We take the law and we say, all right, is this cleanliness laws? Okay. Then it's fulfilled in Jesus. All right. Is this moral laws? Okay. Well, then this moral law might not directly apply to me exactly the way that it's written, but I can pull principles. I can play, pull morals out of it that apply to me today. And we're going to go through a few of those this morning. And why do we do that? Because God doesn't change. Amen. God doesn't change. All right. Let's do some practicum these are going to be fun. A little weird, but fun. Okay. Um, let's go to Leviticus chapter 19. (coughs) We've talked through this one before. I want somebody to read Leviticus 19 verses 23 through 25. Leviticus 19 verses 23 through 25 and read it big and loud. Whoever gets there first can go. You shall keep my Read loud, Andrew. Wait, verse 23. Le- Leviticus 19, verse 23 through 25. <laughs> Wait, hold on. What do you got? Go ahead. Go ahead, Andrew. 23. 23. Oh, wait, I think you're in chapter. Here, let me, let me catch it. I think you're in chapter 23. Let me catch it real quick. So verse in Leviticus chapter 19, starting in verse 23, it says this. When you enter the land and plant any kind of fruit tree, regard its fruit as forbidden for three years. You are to consider it forbidden. It must not be eaten. In the fourth year... All its fruit will be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. But in the fifth year, you may eat of its fruit. In this way, your harvest will be increased. I am the Lord your God. All right, so what are we talking about here? We're talking about fruitfulness, okay? But what's the, what's the method that he's given them in order that they may have more fruitfulness in the land in which they're going? So he's already sent them into the land. He's already given them the promises that this is the land flowing with milk and honey. But then he puts a step back and he says, first off, hey, if you want to be really fruitful, do this with your fruit trees. Wait. Hey, what is he really saying? He's saying, if you want to be fruitful, be patient. That's what he's really saying. And that principle applies to all of us. If you really want to be fruitful, if you want to grow, if you want things, to, don't expect you land in the land of Canaan for the first time and there's just milk and honey everywhere. I mean, I imagine they walked in and they were like, man, we burned down all these cities. Man, now we got to start over and do all this work. They had a lot of work left to do after they got into the land, but the Lord was giving them through this promise and through others. Hey guys, it's going to take time, but your fruitfulness will come. You get it? It's the same principle like if you've ever planted and grown things in your yard, you put a little pepper plant in the ground, it's about this tall, and you pour a little pep- pepper plant, it's stupid, and it's like, hey, I'm only four inches tall, but I'm going to make a pepper, and then what does it wind up doing? It sends all of its nutrients to the fruit and not to the root system or to the leaves, and it kills itself, so we're supposed to do what? When it's only this tall, you pick the blossoms off, right? And that helps the plant to grow even larger and produce ultimately a better root system, better leaf system, and it produces more fruit. That's easy stuff. All right. How about Deuteronomy 25, verses 11 and 12? Part of me wants to make you guys read this one out loud, but I don't want you to be embarrassed. So I'm going to read it out loud for you. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 11 through 12. This one's super awkward. Here we go. When men fight with one another... And the wife of one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of him who is beating him and puts out her hand and seizes him by the private parts. Then you shall have her hand. Your eyes shall have no pity. Now, this is obviously not a problem that we have anymore, right? Well, maybe at some bars in South Louisiana, we might still have this problem specifically. At a Waffle House. <laughs> At a Waffle House. Oh, man. So hopefully we don't still have this exact specific problem. But what's the principle that's being given here? What's the principle? Say again? Oh, I think Carrie's close. Well, it's more prescriptive than that. It's not don't let your wife handle your business. It's ladies, let your husband fight his own battles. Okay. That's that's the principle here. A man's going to be a man, and sometimes that means he's going to fight. And one of the biggest temptations that I've found for women is to try to save their husbands or, like, be their moms. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have y'all ever seen that situation kind of develop here? Some of y'all are too scared to nod. That's okay. This is a safe place. So listen. (coughs) The principle here is, ladies, let your man fight his fights. Sometimes... Your man's going to overextend it himself, and he's going to look stupid. Let him look stupid. Amen? Let him look stupid. Don't try to rescue him. Don't try to be his mom. Let your man fight his fights and move on from there. That's the general principle there. All right, let's go on. Deuteronomy Deuteronomy chapter 25 down into verse 13. (coughs) You see how we're pulling, we pull the principles out. We pull the morals out, Right? We're not necessarily walking around chopping off ladies' hands whenever they. You get what I'm saying? Like, we're pulling the principle out, not the. Not the literal case law. All right, verse 13. You shall not have in your bag two kinds of weights, a large and a small. Verse 14. You shall not have in your house two kinds of measures, a large and a small, a full and a fair weight you shall have, a full and a fair measure you shall have, that your days may be long in the land and that the, that the Lord your God is giving you. For all who do such things, all who ask, dis, act dishonestly are an abomination to the Lord your God. All right, so here's let me, let me give you a little bit of context. <clears throat> Back in the gap, if you had a if you were trading with someone, uh, sometimes the way the shifty trade people worked was they had a heavyweight and a lightweight and they were like, yeah, both of these are they both weigh a pound, mm, but they didn't and they would use the heavy pound when they wanted to and the light pound that, when they wanted to in order to make sure that their trade deals were better. And this was a common practice. A lot of people did this way. And so what is God saying? He's like, uh uh-uh. uh you get one weight you get one scoop you're not going to go ahead and try to pick which ones are bigger just carry one in your bag just carry one in your bag now what's the point what's the point the point is to be fair, fair, fair. just right god cares about justice so the principle that we pull out here is we don't try to say to some of our customers it costs $2500 and to other of our customers it costs 12 you get what I'm saying? We try as best we possibly can to be fair and say, this is how much this costs. This is the fee. This is what we're going through. Now, there's ebbs and flows in pricing, and I understand that too, and the market changes. And in some instances, you give this guy a great deal and you don't offer the same deal to this person. I, I get all those ideas. I get all those concepts. But the general principle here is what should guide us in our business, fair, justice, and moving forward from there. Um, we're out of time. I've got some extra fun ones, but we'll save those for next time. Let's pray and then we'll get ready for the Lord's day. Father, thank you that you give us an opportunity to enjoy you and worship you and study your word. I pray that we would take advantage of this every week and that you would help us to honor you in all these things. Lord, we love you. We pray that you would be honored and glorified in today's worship services and that we would delight in you all our days in Jesus name and all God's people said, amen. amen. See y'all in a bit.